Listening to Condé Nast Traveler's podcast, Women Who Travel, you will be transported to the ancient ruins of Pompeii, to New York City's most storied neighborhoods, and to the jaw-dropping peaks of Bhutan. It's the best of what you love about traveling, experiencing different people, cultures, and perspectives, all from the comfort of your own home. Each week, join host and global journalist Lali Alikoglu as she shares her own experiences along with those of self-identifying women travelers from all over the globe. How do the bestie comedian pairs of Sheer Zamata and Nicole Byer navigate travel together? What can you realistically expect from your first global solo travel experience? How is dance used as a tool for healing in Indigenous Australian communities? If these questions piqued your interest, pack your bags and go on a journey with women who travel. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, this is Rohan. And today we've got a special episode of Meditative Story. Actually, it's a complete experiment. And hey, you're invited along. We've been thinking about what you've shared with us in our community surveys. And one of the things that comes up a lot is the interest in exploring the episode themes more deeply. I told the team I'm well up for trying this, and we'd love to know what you think. After you listen, email us at hello at meditativestory.com and tell us if this test works for you. I'll remind you of that email at the end of the episode. One of the reasons I love being part of Meditative Story is that it can really help deepen our understanding of ourselves. Think about it this way. Yes, we go into other people's stories, but doing so holds a mirror up to our own lives and our own transformative experiences. And so, in this episode, in this experiment, we're inviting back a storyteller who very recently shared their meditative story with us. We're going to wind our way back through her story, and with her alongside me right here, we'll talk about the key themes in a way that I hope may just open up something special in you. And if that happens, I'd say the experiment may just be worth a go for real. We'll make that decision with your feedback later. And with that, the body relaxed. The body breathing. Your senses open. Your mind open. Meeting the world. Kristen, welcome back. How are you doing? I am great. It's wonderful to be here. If you remember Kristen Winbigler's story from last week, that's great. If not, that's no biggie. In it, she shares her coming-of-age story in rural North California, in love with the community and the country life around her. One evening, gathered around the television with her mum and dad, Kristen watches a news report that suggests families like hers, living below the poverty line, are in critical need of help. What the TV journalist misses is that it's possible to live abundantly without a big paycheck, without the need for anything other than what the land and community already provide. The news report sends Kristen on a path to tell deeper, multi-dimensional stories that help us see that we're much more similar than we are different. All of us. So Kristen, what we're going to do in this episode is to listen back to some highlights and segments of your story. Are you okay listening to your Sandy Bone voice? 
I'm getting there. I made a deal with myself that I would listen to one minute and then I listened to two minutes and then pretty soon I had listened to the whole thing. <laughs> it's one of life's great curiosities, isn't it? Listen to the sound of your own voice. But um, I'm afraid I'm going to put you through it again, though. So what we're going to do is revisit some moments where I reckon there's some real underlying wisdom to dig into. We'll keep it light and fun. But the idea is to reveal some of those gems and how our listeners might reflect on your experience in their own lives. In this moment of your story, Something really colourful and unusual descends on the front lawn of your home in rural Humboldt County, California. And in response, your neighbours rally to the occasion. Shall we listen? Yes, please. Out of nowhere, a flock of 50 peacocks have landed in the giant black walnut tree in our front yard. 50 peacocks! They're glimmering in the sun and they're making that sound, that ah! It seems the peacocks somehow escaped from the neighboring ranch in the middle of the night and now they strut around the yard with their iridescent blue necks and bright green tail feathers. Hundreds of eye spots look straight at us. The whole scene is magical. But it also means there's work to be done. How do you move a flock of peacocks? We call our neighbors and the old man who lives there, he comes over to bring the birds back to home base. We get busy working together because that's just how we all are here. We sort of live by a barter system. You help me this time and I'll help you next time. This time it's peacocks. Next time it's getting the road cleared. We all drop what we're doing to help someone who needs it. I often joke that if your house is on fire, even your enemies will show up with buckets of water. We may have different opinions. We may see the world in completely opposite ways, but we have to make it work somehow. And when there is trouble, you have to come together. You're all each other have. And so, when peacocks show up, you find yourself all doing this thing together. Working hard, laughing, figuring out how to solve a problem. You're together in the moment and living life. Like really living it. We're doing this thing together and it matters. Now, Kristen, that is probably hands down the best peacock impression I've, I've heard in my life. So I have to, have to recognize that. I was trying to think of times or moments when I've had an experience of that. People coming together with a bigger problem that no one can really solve by themselves. And the one that came to mind, actually, was I'd gone on a family trip. My mother had come up and, and we'd gone out into the Scottish Highlands for the weekend. And we were driving back and the snow came in to the point where all the three roads either way were impassable. But the great fortune was that in the middle of these three roads was a hotel. So suddenly we checked into this hotel and there was sort of an ad hoc community of about 80 people, I think, who were all in the same position of being snowed in. And all of us just sitting around, having dinner in the sort of bar area around the fires was such a great memory. Because, you know, we we all were trying to solve this problem together. And because we had this bigger problem than each of us individually, 
It was like we were instant good friends. For that 48 hours, there's a real sort of magical connection there. There's something about the, the clarity that comes, huh, in that kind of crisis where everyone has to focus on the things. It made me think of this time we were traveling with my mom to town, and it's it's like an hour through very you know rural place there aren't a lot of people around and we've there was a woman uh standing out in the rain crying and uh my mom stopped and um we went back we took her back to her campground and i i can't it was some sort of domestic dispute but i i had i'd never seen my mom do anything like that like I, I, help a, a stranger, but I think she, she saw a woman who might be in a, a dangerous situation. And I, I think about it a lot. Um, you know, these are decisions that we all have to make all the time. And I guess the heart of that is, when does someone else's problem become your problem, right? There's a lot of meditation practice and mindfulness practice about exploring this boundary of self and other. And so a lot of that work is starting to see through some of those boundaries. The more you get into mindfulness, the more you start to look at this stuff, you know, the line between self and other. And over time, the line becomes less solid, to the extent where our starting position is to see that which is shared rather than our differences, our judgments and comparisons. And when that does become a default way of being, the only natural result is kindness, generosity and community. Of course, we need the labels of self and other, me and you, to operate in the world, but holding them too tightly has its costs. Kristin, we're now going to listen to the moment when you first discover the trap of us versus them. The perception that divides us from seeing each other for who we truly are. We gather around each week to watch the news shows. Tonight, they're covering a story that touches on poverty in America. They're talking about what it means to fall below the poverty line. I've never heard these words before, but I'm ready to feel sad for these folks. Then they share exactly how much money you have to earn annually to be considered below the poverty line. I look over at my parents and I can tell from the expressions on their faces that this is news to them. It turns out we live below the poverty line. Us. It doesn't match up. We're happy. My life is so rich here, so how can we be poor? I look to my parents for a sign that they agree, a sign that the broadcast got it wrong. They just giggle nervously at the broadcast. I try to laugh it off too, but I can't just move on. I don't have the words for it, but I know something is wrong. What the TV journalist misses is that it's possible to live abundantly without a big paycheck. My parents choose to live a different way here. We grow our own food, we make our own clothes. We don't need anything we don't already have. After that broadcast, I start to see the world around me with new eyes, and I start to notice what's special about this place, what other people maybe don't understand. And I decide, I'm gonna be a journalist someday. I want to write and tell stories about us, where we come from. Because we don't see ourselves on TV or in the movies or in magazines. The country folk on TV are all stereotypes like the Beverly Hillbillies. 
but there's so much more to us that people don't bother to see. We're not some two-dimensional characters. Life isn't like those shows. So, Kristen, that was such a compelling image of like, whoa, that's, that's us. They're, that's us they're talking about. And, you know, they talked about the sort of the Beverly Hillbilly sort of stereotypes of country folk. And has it got better enough? I, I think that there is a concerted effort in the media to try to tell more um, s- stories from rural people. And um, our stories, you know, they don't necessarily... Um, make it into the mainstream reporting, um, especially when they um, when they aren't predictable stories, or you know they, when they don't suit the stereotype. And you know that's a, a lot of what we try to to get at uh, at the Western Folklife Center and through the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering is our artists are also uh, creating art from from the lives that they're living. And that that is much different than what most people are accustomed to seeing in uh, TV Westerns or, or movies. And don't get me wrong, nobody loves a, a Western movie more than me, but um, those don't usually accurately reflect what people's lives are truly like. Kristen, when you're with someone that sees you as other than themselves or holds a bias that stands in the way, and you're interested in closing that gap, how do you do that? I try to do it kindly. I think for me, language holds a lot of the keys. There are words I, that I sometimes sprinkle into conversation when I know that I'm talking to a tech person, you know, so that I can show that I, I have a little bit in me that's like them too. And then the the same for when I'm meeting ranch folks uh, around the West. Um, I, I want them to know, you know, I'm not just this uh, woman they think is from New York City or S- San Francisco, but I, I have a background that is is similar to them. You know, we all in our own ways want to feel recognized and welcome. But it is true that biases and blind spots get in the way of that. Being yourself and finding what is truly shared can be what it takes to soften those fears and bypass those biases. It's a form of wise action, really, being authentic and pointing to what joins rather than to what divides. All right, Kristen, let's move to this next moment from your story. You share a beautiful insight about the abundance that exists in country living and city living. Let's listen. Slowly... I start to realize there's so much I don't know yet about other people and how they see the world. For years, I've wrestled with the caricatures people paint of rural communities. I'm starting to realize I have my own stereotypes about city people. But over those first months in San Francisco, I start to encounter an abundance in this place. The beauty of the bridges, the fog rolling out each morning, the sunny days when you can walk along the water, the experience of so much culture in one place. My original beliefs start to melt away. Gratitude seeps in. I feel lucky as I leave the office after a long day. Maybe we're crammed into small spaces, but how lucky am I to be surrounded by these fascinating people doing such important work? I'm the cowgirl, but I'm definitely not the only character in this warehouse filled with city folk building these new things called websites. 
The Wired office is filled with a combination of journalists, artists, geeks, and hipsters. We use all kinds of colorful language. We celebrate creativity. Go out and do whatever. Even if whatever means eating bear jerky at your desk. We'll cheer you on. We're doing this thing together. And it matters. You know, it can take a lot of energy to constantly keep differentiating with each other. Country and city folk. Us and them. And this story reminds me actually of a time years ago when I was on a sort of meditation retreat. I was supposed to be doing some walking meditation on a long, narrow, sandy path. But I was taking a break, just playing around, drawing stuff in the sand. And I scratched out a line with a stick. I looked at it for a while and had a very clear insight. The line that separated both sides of it also joined them. In those days in San Francisco, Christian, I think it feels a bit like that. Community is always available as a choice. We just have to see it and take it. Absolutely. And, you know, we had this this common value that we shared, and that is, you know, personal authenticity, the, the, the freedom to be really who you are. And this together with freedom of speech and the democratization of ideas and creativity and creative problem solving. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a real flow and joy when we can be with others and not have to hold anything back. It's so rich and maybe infectious in its own way. In this next moment from your meditative story, you bring us to a breathtaking talk on the stage of the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering. We come full circle, I guess, decades after that TV news report sent you on your path to tell the kind of stories that wash our differences away. Let's take in the scene together, shall we? And then we'll come back with closing thoughts. I stand in the back of the theater as A.G. takes the stage. He sits on a wooden bar stool with a microphone in hand. Behind him, a mural of mountains painted on the wall. A.G.'s a fourth-generation Nevada rancher, but he doesn't look like the stereotypical cowboy. He has a big beard and a glint in his eye. This man radiates goodness. A.G.'s telling us how he's working to save his family ranch. He shows us pictures from the early 70s when the land was overgrazed. The grass in the photos is depleted and bare. He didn't know that it could look any different. But he starts listening to other people with outsiders. And they start listening to him. African scientists and Washington legislators and Nevada ranchers. You wouldn't expect these folks to ever meet each other, much less solve a problem. But they did. They all worked together to try something new, and the results were astonishing. The land came back, life took on new forms, and everything, all the people and all the animals, benefited from the land's revival. AG ends with a quote from Chief Seattle. All things are connected, like the blood which unites one family. I walk backstage to the control room, and the Los Angeles-based camera crew are in tears. They've never heard a story like this on the news. More people need to hear the story, they tell me. 
And I think what moves them is the same thing I felt as a kid, helping to corral the peacocks. In that small rural community, what happens to one person affects everyone. And this is true in a wider, deeper sense too. We're all connected. And when we work together toward a common goal, our differences fall away. And we get the soaring feeling of being really, truly alive. We're doing this thing together. And it matters. There's something about how you talk about it here, Kristen, which is when you're in a context like that, be the peacocks or AG working on that land, and it starts coming together, there's a natural joy, lightness, flow. You can feel it in the body, can't you? And you know, for me, that's the clue. That's your whole being going, yeah, this is the thing. And it's sort of how the mindfulness process works. You do something which takes a bit of energy, sure, but you feel the benefit of it. And then that lubricates you to keep doing it. And this positive feedback loop is so important. And so with your camera person, I think that's what they're talking about, right? They like something that's just happened in them, which is like, oh, there's a real connection to this story. And they're feeling something that's so meaningful to them. Yeah, you know, the practical story of how this land gets revitalized is really important. But I think for me, what I hear he's saying is more people need to feel like I'm feeling right now. So Kristen, as festival organizers, is creating the conditions for this kind of magic something you intentionally try to do? We definitely do, although a lot of it just happens on its its own. You know, you, you try as hard as you can to get to the day when it all starts, and then it just um, there are there are like three hundred volunteers who help us make it happen, and um, I, th- I think a lot of them are operating off of what you're talking about, and that is it makes us all feel good. It feels good to, to be together. Um, when we're curating, um, we always try to make sure that there are some surprises so that it, it isn't the same event every year. There's always something, uh, unexpected. Um, they had a international program for a long time that I'm, I'm hoping to revive, but we, we had Mongolian throat singers one year and, uh, as an attendee, this was before I worked there. It, it's one of my favorite uh, memories of the gathering is, you know, watching this cowboy yodel. And I think there was an accordion involved and then the throat singing happening and there was some trading of hats and it, it was just, it was marvelous. It was, it, it was mind blowing. Um, and so we, we, yeah, there's some strong, strong hat game. (laughs) Um, and that, you know, and it is, it's, uh, a celebration of the things that we have in common and even in, you know, some surprising ways. Thank you, Kristen. Well, it was lovely to meet everyone and always happy to be part of your experiments. You know, with Kristen on the show sharing her experience, I feel just that little bit more cowboy myself. Double denim isn't quite in my fashion wheelhouse, but never say never, right? In fact, Kristen is the third cowboy-related storyteller we've had in recent times, 
The poet Wadi Mitchell was first, and then Guan Featherstone talking about the awesome work he does in Compton. And because of the process of researching, working on the stories and all that, the internet gods made the decision that I was so into the cowboy life that all of a sudden, my Instagram ads changed. Changed away from being all about hipster sweaters to being exclusively selling me horsemanship courses in Colorado. Dear listener, I wasn't not tempted. And I know that's all algorithms and whatnot, but it does point me back to what is the main theme of Kristen's story. That when we turn to them, the connections between me and you are always here. We do need our definitions, our labels, our allegiances in life. They help us navigate the world. But it takes work to defend them. Through practices like mindfulness and good old-fashioned learning the hard way, we can, however, see that in our hearts, they are just a construction. Maybe not as solid, fixed, or important as we once thought. And what is left, when they are seen through, is the unity that is always here. The container of all things. So with that, I'm going to sign off now and hope you enjoyed our experiment here today. Click on the link in the show notes to share your thoughts about the episode or email us at hello at meditativestory.com. On behalf of the team at Meditative Story, thank you for spending time with us today. We love creating the show for you. And if the show serves you in a meaningful way, we'd love to hear from you. Would you take a minute right now to write us a review in your podcast app? When you leave a review, it really inspires our team. And we're a group who derives so much energy from understanding how meditative story impacts you. It's also a way for you to pay it forward by helping others discover the show. So if leaving a review speaks to you today, we'd really appreciate it. Meditative Story is a Wait What original. Our executive producers are Darren Triff and June Cohen. Jay Punjabi is our supervising producer. The series is produced by Dorothy Abrams and Timothy Lulee. Original music and sound design by Ryan Holiday. Additional music by Alison Wade. Our script writers are Hannah Brencher, Peter Keckley, and Florence Williams. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Anna Pizzino, Sarah Tata, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Sammy Oputa, Leah Serametis, Colin Howarth, Chineme Ezequena, Charlie Menezes, and Adam Heiner. And I'm Rohan Gunatilaka, creator of the Buddhify Meditation app, and your host visit meditativestory.com to find the transcript for this episode.